And later on, the executive director approached me and said, you know, we've been talking and we think your blog has value if you wanted to turn it into a book and we'd like to help support you doing that. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life, a blessing. achieve your dream, and then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. All right, everybody, I'm so excited to introduce you to Annette Wick. Annette was actually referred to me by Barbara Hauser. Shout out to Barbara Hauser. And she is a writer and community connector, and she is the author of an incredible book called I'll Have Some of Yours. Welcome, Annette. Thank you, Sarah. I'm so glad we finally got together. I know. It's been how many months? <laughs> I, I, I can't. Yeah, I like, that. seriously, yeah. eight I've lost count. I know. Because I've had a lot that's happened in my life as well as a lot that's happened in the world. Yeah. So, And you're going to talk about that a little bit today. Absolutely. So should we start with the book? Yeah. Wait, first of all, t- everybody likes to know a little bit like you and where you grew up. And, right. Yeah, and where yeah. you live now, which I know, which is really cool. So maybe share about it. Okay. So that. some context. I grew up in Northern Ohio, so I'm a Cleveland Indians, if I can say that now, um, fan. And um, I moved to Cincinnati after college and then met my first husband and we moved away to Oregon. So um, spent some time in the Pacific Northwest. If you get into this book or my previous book, I'll be in the car, um, which was based all in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I have a an affinity for the Pacific Northwest. And so sometimes I still cry my eyes out when I can't be Aww. there and I'm back here in Cincinnati. But Cincinnati has been my home now for the past um, 20 years. and um, What brought you back here? Well, family and my first husband passed away of cancer. Um, so I took care of him for three years. And um, and then we, we came back here for family and it was a, a blessing. Okay. And now... Annette, I, did you have children with him? We did. We had one son. Okay. And um, actually, he just flew in from Oregon. So he took the plunge and flew across country with his mask on. Um, so that was really pleasant. But I also remarried a, a wonderful man who had lost his first wife to cancer. Okay. And um, he had three girls. So we have essentially raised them together. We, we've been married for 14 years. Okay. And um, we just say we're two boys shy of the Brady Bunch. Oh. Um, but <laughs> But now that they're all marrying off, we're kind of evening out the numbers some. <laughs> That's awesome. And you guys live? And so we live in Over the Rhine. Yes. We moved down there about seven years ago when we knew that we were fast becoming empty nesters. And um, we were attracted to just the vibe, the energy. And of course, this was kind of before Over the Rhine became hot and we yeah. had a lot of our friends um, tell us that we were crazy. Of course, Barbara, our mutual friend, was yes. down there much earlier than that, probably 12 years ago, if not more. And, um, you know, we we pursued it and we followed through and we love the city. We absolutely, we love the city. We love being, um, that's why I call myself a community connector because I love being engaged in whether it's politics or nonprofits or the arts, um, 
I sit on the board of the Friends of Music Hall, and I was previously on the board for the Cincinnati Memorial Hall Society. Um, so we've been really active and engaged in in anything we can really possibly get our hands on, just trying to, I think, learn at this stage in our lives. Yeah. It's really energizing to be in a learning mode. And, um, and of course, we're in a pandemic, so that just adds more learning on top of everything else. <laughs> yes. So um, first of all, Caregiver twice. Caregiver twice. Yeah. First husband, and then to your mom. Right. And the mom, your mom is what the book is all written about. Absolutely. And um, so, why don't you share about the book and okay the inspiration for that? When I was living in Cincinnati, and my parents were still in Northern Ohio, about the time that my mom started showing signs of dementia. And a part of me was just really frustrated by the fact that I couldn't do anything. I was busy raising this new family that I had married into. And, um, you know, parents are parents and they wanted to do things their way. So there was just a lot of um, frustration on everybody's part, you know, not knowing where this disease was going to take my mom, um, not knowing what her path was and feeling helpless. So one of the first things I did was work with the Alois Alzheimer's Center, and they are a long-term care facility for individuals that have mild to moderate cognitive impairment. And we started a writing circle. Uh-huh. And um, so every week we would do it in segments of, you know, two months here, two months there, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I had aides come in and I also had a a teaching partner and we would sit and we'd write to themes about the beach or baseball and sports or just, you know, any sort of um, life event or activity that they could identify with. Yes. And we would read poetry and just really prompt them on what do you, you know, what, what do you see? What do you think about when you, when somebody tells you, you know, we're going to the beach today. And so it would just elicit a lot of memories for them. And some of which were very surprised even to them. And they would say, Oh, I forgot that even happened in my life. Um, so it is possible to pull these memories out of people. And when that happened, what was their emotional response to that? Was it joy or was it sadness? Everything. It was everything across the board. Um, Sometimes they'd cry. Sometimes it was tears of joy because it was something that they could remember and they had a good feeling from it. So, um, so mostly it was, it was just joy and pride in the fact that they could do something, you know, they, they want to still, um, be productive with their hands. They want to be productive with what they have to say. They want to be listened to, even if, um, you know, my, of course, my mom even got to this point where a lot of the, what she was saying sounded like fiction in many cases. Yeah. Um, but they still wanted somebody to listen to them. So that was my first effort in just getting a sense of what is it like to be around people who are experiencing dementia. Yeah. And um, and then as my mom continued her progression, we decided to move my parents into Cincinnati. Okay. My dad was, um, he had Parkinson's just in the very early stages. So they lived in independent living for a while, but eight months later he passed away. And that's when um, I took charge of my mother's care, um, worked, you know, 
she transitioned through several different care settings before we finally found the right, the right place for her. And I always tell people that because I want people to feel, um, you know, everyone feels guilty because they're already moving their parents into Why did you a memory care them? setting. There, one, because the disease is unpredictable. And two, um, not every place is going to be the right place for your person, for your loved one. And um, that happened several times for my mom. And I was okay with it. You know, it was hard, but she eventually settled into, eventually when somebody has dementia, you know, they continue to decline and then they plateau and then they decline and then they plateau. And you have to be able to find the right place for where they are when they're in a plateau and maybe not going to decline too much further. Or that setting has to be able to accommodate wherever they are and whatever, however they might decline after that. Okay. okay. So um, most of the individuals in the memory care setting where my mom lived at Arden Courts um, had no other real physical Debilities. Like maybe they were in wheelchairs. They had walkers. They didn't require um, really any hardcore nursing. Okay. Um, you know, pills, things like that. Some therapy. Um, the occasional run to the hospital, or the more than occasional run to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we landed on a place that was the right time for her. For her. So, when did you know that you knew you wanted to write a book? I've been a writer for a long time, and the blog was something I started keeping um, just as a way to keep track of what was going on. And I knew that that was something that had been therapeutic for me during um, my first husband's bout with cancer. So I knew that that would be relevant and helpful for people later on. And of course, you know, blogging was a very popular. Um, means in which to do that. And once I started sharing it and of course started talking to other people that were going through it, um, I'm 54. I don't mind sharing that. And, you know, all of my peers had parents about the same age. So everyone was going through it. Everyone is still going through it. And I knew the value of sharing my story to help alleviate somebody's pain, um, provide some joy or insight or wisdom, even if it's just like learning in the moment. Yeah. I'd like to share a little bit about how the book did come into being the executive director. My mom lived at Arden Courts for six years and the staff Um, was pretty consistent most of that time. And the executive director had probably been in place there for at least four years that that I can think of. And we grew pretty close. And all of the staff, the caregivers became family. After that long a period of time, they, they are your family. You come to rely on them more so than you even rely on your own family. Um, Uh, several months after my mom passed away, we held a memorial service for her at Arden Court so that all the caregivers and staff could be a part of saying goodbye to her. And later on, the executive director approached me and said, "Um, you know, we've been talking and we think your blog has value if you wanted to turn it into a book and we'd like to help support you doing that. And I had never considered it, even though I'd published one book, I continue to be a writer, I've done a lot of freelance writing, and it, it just never struck me in that moment because I think I was still grieving. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I went home. Yeah, 
Yeah. I went home and I, I thought about it and I thought, of course, like why else was I keeping this journal if, or this blog, if it wasn't meant to be shared. So, um, They've been extremely supportive and helped. I, I've, I go out and I do speaking engagements on their behalf. Well, I was until, until COVID. COVID. Mm-hmm. And, um, but hopefully that'll start back up at some point in yeah. time. I've done a couple um, Zoom presentations for them, speaking to um, some of their caregivers and also to prospective families or families of loved ones. And, and who should be reading this book? Anyone who um, anticipates and sees maybe the early signs of a loved one that's experiencing some sort of memory loss. And memory loss can come from dementia. You know, there are over like 300 different kinds of dementias from a clinical standpoint. Okay. And, you know, there, there's, there's vascular dementia. There's dementias that follow a stroke. There's dementias that come from Parkinson's. There's Lewy body dementia. There's so many different dementias. So it's, it's going to impact people at some point in time. I would also say anyone who is looking to, who's looking to bring back together their relationship with their parents, maybe with their mother. Mothers and daughters go through life with a lot of push and pull. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that in reading this, people might find um, maybe the space to forgive their loved one for any past transgressions and also find the opportunities in which they can still be a part of their loved one's lives. And as I was saying before, when when we first met, um, you don't always get that time to make up the difference, yeah. and and you might as well take advantage of it. And I think by reading, sometimes I I call my book a how not to instead of a how to, <laughs> and <laughs> and I hope that people learned some lessons on on what I did or maybe read some things and thought, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. And that's, I'm totally okay with that because I can look back and think, well, I'm not sure that that was the right way to go either, but it was what I knew at the time. Yeah. So uh, a previous guest that I had on, Rachel DeRochers, her, she's really into gratitude. It's kind of her thing. Do you know her? I I know of her. Okay. She posted a beautiful post. I think her mom is, is actively dying and um, she posted about the gratitude of being able to be with her during that time. And I think just like you, I'm a, a couple years behind you, but my friend's parents are getting older too. Right. And just like um, appreciating and being present for that time. Because for my dad, when he was sick, I was really young. I didn't really, I wasn't present. With my mom's, I promised myself that I would be present for her when she was getting to that point. And it was the greatest gift that I, for her, I'm sure for her, but for me. Right. You know, and because you want to look back and say, and when I got done with the book and after I read it several times, not as a critical editor or anything, and I thought, I, I don't have any regrets. I, and I, I did what I was going to do, and 
I said to my, I distinctly recall saying to my husband somewhere in the midst of all of the the journey, I said, I don't want to look back and have any regrets. So I'm going to give this my all. And sometimes my all was a little too much and sometimes it wasn't enough, but it all balanced out. Yeah. And I think if we can look back on our lives and and not have that sort of regret and be present for them, you know, in the end, somebody that has dementia, all you can do is just be there for them, which is why my heart goes out to anyone who is dealing with a loved one behind secure units and doors right now, because you can't physically be present. And so some of the um, advice that I'm giving to people is, well, how how do you still maintain your presence with somebody that you can't physically be in front of? So talking about the language that you use and use, use of healing language and use of poetry to connect with them if you're just going to read poems over the phone. Or really? a lot of times early on, I used to read my mom um, Dr. Seuss books and because she could still connect to the rhythms and that would just bring her some sort of joy. And she remembered reading those books to us as kids. Um, so trying to find unique ways that you could stay connected. And of course there's, you know, you can do all sorts of things now technology wise with pictures, with, um, with audio, with video, and there's, there's countless sorts of tech startups that are doing some really cool things too, that will help, um, caregivers get to know your loved one so that they understand their story. And when I say story, I mean everything that comes along with them, you know, whether they, like my mom, for instance, lost her firstborn son, um, or she was born, um, her father died before she was born. So understanding a lot of the, um, emotional trauma that my mom might have experienced as well as all of the emotional highs that she experienced, you know? And so the more that you can share with caregivers and staff about your loved ones, the more they are going to treat them like someone that they know, like someone who's family and somebody that they're going to want to take care of. And so many of those caregivers, they're amazing. They are dedicated. They, um, they'd run through a wall for your loved one. And most people don't understand that. Like their their first reaction is they want to attack. They want to nitpick at what hasn't been done. And they don't always see um, the beauty of what has been done. So is there a favorite excerpt that you would want to read today? Oh. Oh, it's like a poetry reading it here. It is, it is. Um, I might read this because it dovetails into what we were saying about the caregivers. All right. So this is entitled Unintended Consequences of Caring, in which families pitch in to help each other. With narrowed eyes and a pointed nose, Rita plunked forward from behind her walker. She caught me in her sight as I arrived to see my mother, halted, and asked a question in her gravelly voice. Miss, miss, excuse me, do you know what time it is? Before I could break into a song by the group Chicago, Rita raised a second question, her eyes peering over glasses. Miss, excuse me, miss, can you, can I make a phone call? Conveniently, Rita had seven children. When it came time to care for her in her old age, it was good to have the same number of children as there were days in the week. They took turns each day stopping by, and so she set her clock by the times when her children came to visit. If they did not arrive according to Rita's expectations, she asked for the phone to find out why. Reaching out with those questions, Rita confused me for someone who worked there, 
someone who could help. I tried. It's one o'clock, I answered to the first question. A caregiver laughed heartily and stepped in to get the next one. Miss Rita, one of your children will be coming soon. Four o'clock or three, or maybe not until five the next day, because one child had already visited, but always each day. Rita glanced up at the round wall clock in the kitchen, ticking the minutes away. When I'd moved my mother into her care home, I'd felt the weight of my father's death. I rarely paid attention to the comings and goings of other residents, who was new, who was only short-term care while a loved one attended to other business. I didn't consider the challenges or playfulness of the staff, which caregiver was pregnant, which one was getting married. Over the years, residents had transitioned from their place in the hallway asking for the phone or the time to a place in my heart. And when residents died, those who remained, the family of loved ones, caregivers, and other residents, and me, shared in our grief. A month later, Rita was dead. She had lived at the care home for four years my mother had resided there. She had become like family to all the residents. Rita's family was like family to other residents and caregivers. It was how this place worked. It was why this place worked. It was a closely held secret only because one had to be on the inside to experience it. Family and caregivers shared laughs and cries, driving tips and restaurant ideas. We pitched in to help each other. I hugged plenty of residents when I was around, feeling joyful or in need of hugs myself. Many guests hugged my mother when I was absent or away. At present, my mother was keen on a visitor named Mike and his soothing voice, while white-bearded Mike chatted with and spoon-fed a wife experiencing younger-onset Alzheimer's. His wife murmured, and her eyes, framed by blunt-cut bangs, lit up at her husband's presence. But she didn't chat much back. My mother didn't care about interrupting them. Mike didn't either. In Rita's dying days, her large family had filed in and out of her room and mourned the passing of time. Those of us with loved ones and residents knew to let them alone. Families also knew to manage on their own, so the staff could offer support to Rita's family when necessary. If my mother had a need, such as finding a lost slipper, I could certainly take on that task so caregivers could be available to Rita and her family. Stay close to the grief, but not in it. When Rita passed away, I observed several of the caregivers in their loss. There were usually two or three dedicated ones to each corridor based on daytime and nighttime shifts and staffing levels. They had grown to be like family to Rita's large family. Most did not attend the funeral to grieve. Long-lost relatives, high school friends, townsfolk, and priests who appeared at Rita's service would never know the round, freckled, concerned, or smiling faces and deft-skilled hands and carpal-tunneled, elastic-bandaged wrists of those who had touched their loved one. Where did the caregivers go to grieve? No one called them to carry the casket. No one sent them sympathy, sympathy cards or picture collages. No one asked what the deceased should wear, the navy blue wool cardigan or the soft sparkling red one, go with the soft, or how she had her hair styled by the stylist or how the barber who had faithfully served him cut his hair through many months of hardship and forgetfulness. The staff and caregivers knew those facts better than any family member. The caregivers weren't left behind with fond memories of Rita when she had been a striking 20-something a middle-aged mother, or a 60-year-old grandmother. They only had recollection of a woman who had grappled with life in a most vulnerable state. 
They did the greatest amount of work and worry at the most critical period of time. Oh, love that. Thank you. You know what I really love? Stay close to the grief, but not, but in, not it. in it. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Because I know this book has given you so many lessons. And you told me this prior to this. But right. like, as I listened to this and as I read it, it's, it is, it's heartbreaking at times. It's funny at times, too. It's very funny. I mean, yes. really funny. Yes. But, but the um, stay close to the grief, but the not grief. in it. How do you do that? It, it, it is a practice. It really is because even outside of the confines of a memory care setting, I think we all have a tendency to kind of try to take on somebody else's grief yes. um, instead of just being there for them. And there's a sense of, you know, we're all so invested in everybody's lives in that memory care setting because, again, my mom was there for six years and there were many other residents who's, and family members that were there for the same period of time. Um, so you want to give them that space to grieve and, and to feel that loss. Um, and also, you have to protect yourself in yeah. a way um, because you still have someone, your loved one is still alive. And you want to be able to give them your full attention as well, too. Yeah. Um, and the same for the caregivers. They had to balance that and they had to grieve the loss and say goodbye to so many people that they came to love and and still be there for my mom if she was yelling for them, you know, from down the hallway. Um, and they, they did that with so much skill and love and compassion um, they they never get paid enough. They will never get paid enough to take care of our loved ones. So I feel like this stay close. Um, yeah, stay close to the grief, but not in it. Yeah. So I think that that's a really good lesson for today, especially during COVID, because I found that I can I can be highly empathetic with things right now, but I need to create some sort of boundary around that. Right. And that I think those caregivers are having to do that all the time. Yes. On an hourly basis, most likely. Yeah. Um, just watching, um, as I mentioned before, I do some work with HR Manor Care and um, write some of the their blog communications. And I had the opportunity to interview a the daughter of a woman who is living at Arden Courts here locally. And they've been able to have window visits and they've been able to have um, front porch visits. Um, so a lot of that's just, I don't know, I, I guess given the fact that Hamilton County cases are back up, I'm not sure if they shut that back down. It seems like everything comes and goes. But yeah. a lot of um, a lot of the, the conversations that we were having was, you know, how how can she continue to process, you know, that feeling of gratitude that you get this one moment, yes. you get these, these five minutes maybe in which your loved one um, versus I might spend an hour with my mom when I was visiting and I'd get five minutes of just golden time. Um, Whereas now everybody's limited. Okay. What would the golden time be? What does Uh, that mean? What would that mean? Just that moment of connection and that moment of love, like this spark. And um, there's a passage in I'll have some of yours about going out on the 4th of July Fourth um, of July was my parents' wedding anniversary, so I always tried to take my mom out on the Fourth of July, 
And um, I think in the end, at the end of the passage, you know, my mom was still stroking my arms and she always, she loved tan arms. It, it was almost as if she could feel the sun by just feeling somebody's tan arms. And um, she would, she started stroking my arms and I just felt this electric shock. And, you know, those are the golden moments when you feel that, um, your mom still knows you, um, that she still sees you, that she still loves you, um, that there's any, just a moment of recognition yeah. is really what that golden moment is all about. Now it's, it's really difficult to achieve that. It's hard to do that over video or on the phone and, um, and even in person because you have probably one or two staff members who are making sure that they're keeping distance. distance. Yep. And uh, so my heart really goes out to them. So um, do we need to talk about the um, bike accident? The bike accident. Yeah. Wait, sorry. Not a bike accident. What happened to you? Didn't you have an accident? Oh, too? yes. Yes. I was. I Yes. I was walking. I'm walking. So my bad. Yeah. My B. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so interestingly enough, um, the book came out um in August yeah. of 2019. So that was about a full year after my mom had passed away. And I was all set, gung-ho, the book is out. I've got my book tour lined up. I have events, speaking events. I've got podcasts. Um, I had my social media rollout, everything. I was, I was prepared. Um, September rolled around and I started participating in these events and, um, I was feeling pretty good yeah. and maybe a little cocky and arrogant. I don't even know. Um, I went away to Oregon, as I mentioned earlier. Um, it's kind of, it's a special place for me. Visited with my son who still lives there and actually um, had a couple of my own sort of golden moments on that uh, along the Oregon coast where I felt I really experienced, I, I felt like I could experience joy in relation to my mother. yes. And okay, and that only took you a year. Yes, that's pretty good. Yeah, because it took well. Because I refused to have, I refused to be sad about my mom for more than like two or three years, which is what happened with my dad. Yeah, I refused to let that happen again, and so um, I had crazy. I had a golden moment with my mom, not like on the other side kind right. of thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, and part of that is because I was, um, I think because I'd been processing everything all along and you keep reframing it, you know, as a writer, you're just always reframing and working with my editor and asking, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? And you eventually get to the point where you're like, oh, I know what I mean by that. Um, And I know the lesson that I'm supposed to take away from that particular essay or that particular passage. And the the moment really on the coast was just a sense of, um, it was just a moment of joy and, and not feeling that I had, I didn't feel weighted down. I felt a, a lightness, a weightlessness that yeah. I couldn't really, um, I can't explain it any other way. And then about a week later at home, um, I'm a prolific walker. And so one of my other blogs was actually called Getting My City On. Yeah. And after we moved into Over the Rhine, I walked um, all of Cincinnati's 52 neighborhoods. And I blogged about each one of them. 
and probably so put you know 250 miles on on my tennis shoes and that was a, a fabulous fabulous effort on my part but um i love walking the city there is nothing that other than walking the oregon coast nothing else compares for me because i just i, I feel the pulse of the city it kind of just gets under my skin and i want to know like what's new what's what's happening i'm just a very curious person um and i use that to um inform my writing a lot. And I was out for a walk on a Monday morning. Um, it was darker. It had been raining. Yeah. Um, I was in a crosswalk. I had the crosswalk signal and um, I was about a third of the way across uh, Broadway downtown when I was hit by a car and thrown off to the side. Um, and I just remember shouting, you know, people, everybody's coming up to me, are you okay, are you okay? And all I remember saying is, I was in the crosswalk. I was in the cross, I had the crosswalk signal. I was so furious because I really, being a prolific walker, you know you have to follow the rules. Yeah. You know you always have to be on the lookout because I've watched so many cars go through you know, traffic signals. So what, so what happened? So I wound up in the emergency room most of that day. Um, I have a, I had a fractured knee, a torn ACL, um, bruised toes on, on both sides. And did the person um, hit and run? She stopped. She did. She did stop. And I did hear, like she stayed at the scene of the accident when the, I went, I do recall when the policeman came up and he said, what happened? And I heard her voice and she said, I just didn't see her. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people expect me to be angry at her. Um, has she reached out to you? You know, people ask all sorts of questions. Has she reached out to you? Has she written you a letter? And I say, well, in our day and age with litigation being what it is, she's not going to reach out to right. me. Right. But I don't hold anything against her. Um, I think we've all been in those near miss uh, situations where anything could happen and it could go one way or the other. And I just was fortunate enough that um, it only impacted my knee. And then I had some um, dental and, you know, kind of bruises on my cheek and things like that. But what that also meant was that that held up all of my uh, book tour, oh. book events. So things were canceled. I couldn't travel. Um, I couldn't get on a plane. I was on crutches for a number of weeks and then started physical therapy. And I, I was finally released from physical therapy on March 13th. And I believe we went into shutdown on March. Oh or, or I was God. released from, yes, right after that. So, uh, so what's your learning lesson? So it's interesting because as soon as I felt like I was healing from this injury and that I could get back and start doing more, um, events related to the book. Um, I had a couple book signings in March, Joseph Beth. I was at a bookstore, Smith & Hannon, down in over the Rhine, speaking engagements, um, things like that. And then we get the shutdown. And I thought, well, you know what? This is one thing I know how to do. I know how to pull back. I know how to grieve for what I can't do. And I know that um, the book will continue to find its place no matter Hold what. on, talk to me about grieve what I can't do. Explain that. Well, to grieve the fact that, you know, most authors aspire to these book tours and there's a there's a sense of, um, I'll say celebrity about it in a yeah. way. And you work hard and you want yeah. that validation 
for it. And I love engaging with the people and I love just listening to all of their stories. Um, and they're, you know, so many so of their stories. Grieving. So it was grieving that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and not being with the people that I felt might need this the most and yes. not finding, you know, not finding a way to, um, get the book into there. So you said you knew how to do that. So how did you do it? Um, I wrote, I wrote a lot. I just went back and honestly, what I started writing about ironically was I wrote, I've been writing a lot about my dad. Um, so I've been journaling so much about him because I more or less promised him that someday I'd write more about him. And I've got a, I've got a whole book now that I've got to put together. Um, and I don't, who knows what form it'll take. You know, sometimes it can just be something that has been inspired by your dad's life versus, um, but it was really, for me, I was trying to find a way to direct that energy into something. Yes. And um, I think that's what we're all directing that energy into something. Into that's something positive, right. you know, and trying to make it a productive anxiety instead of an unproductive anxiety where you're constantly checking the COVID numbers. And um, I had to have a deal I made with my husband at the end of the night. It was like, don't bring the news into bed. Like if I am in yeah. bed, I'm reading. I'm reading a book. I'm not going to be reading the news. I don't want to hear it. We're the same way. Yeah. Do you think that we could close on um, some favorite golden moments with our moms? Oh, sure. Yeah. All right. You want to go first? Sure. (laughs) Listeners, I'm sorry if you've heard this. I shared this with a podcast guest before, but I don't know if it was during or after we stopped rolling. Okay. So, and this is more like I know that she's with me kind of thing. Like it wasn't when she was alive. Right. So my, um, my aunt and uncle have a place out in Arizona and my parents loved going out there. They didn't go out a ton, but a couple times. And so after my mom died, my cousin and I went out there and before we got out there, the only thing that I really wanted to have happen was for me to see a bobcat because we never see animals or like around there. And so, we're there the first day and we walk over into the house is in um, the mountains. Okay. okay. So we walk over to the guest house. We're looking out and I'm with a buddy who works at the Cincinnati zoo and she saw two bobcats, but wait, the story gets better. She saw these two bobcats. She took a picture of them and she sent them to Thane Maynard at the Cincinnati zoo. And oh. it was like, you guys are so lucky. They are so elusive. Blah, blah, blah. So the next day, my cousin and I are sitting outside and I was like, I really feel like mommy brought me that bobcat. And she was like, seriously? And I'm like, no, I'm I'm telling you like with my whole heart, I know this. And she was like, okay, Aunt Sue, what are you going to do now? And my cousin is very outspoken. And I'm not kidding you, Annette. Less than 10 seconds later, another bobcat walked in front of us turned its head, looked at us, and kept walking away. Unbelievable. Wow. So that was my... That's unbelievable. Mommy moment. Yeah. Like, there is no denying. Yeah. And I love that you call her mommy. We were talking about that earlier, too. And there's just something... I don't know. There's a tone of your voice when you say, Hi, Mom. And I miss saying, Oh, hi, Mom. And... You know, that forever tone will always be kind of playing like a soundtrack in my mind or just to hear her say back, hi, Net. And um, but yeah, to say mommy and just know that she was there. That's so beautiful. Yeah. 
Oh, it still makes me cry. And I I believe, um, I believe we have those moments. I still have times in which um, my first husband comes to me in dreams and they're usually related to my son if I'm struggling and I, by struggling, just trying to, you know, accept where he is as a, as a teenager or as a college student or as an adult. Sure. And, um, and he'll come to me in that dream and it's just always the sign that it's okay. Like you've done okay. You know, I have this phrase that I always say to my son, I, I, oh, I was a good mom once. And, um, <laughs> you know, every once in a while he'll, he'll throw out a memory, mom, remember when we did this? And I'll say, yeah, I was a good mom once. And, um, I think I even wrote a poem about it at one point in time. But I, I love those moments. I think they're really special. One of the moments for my is related to my mom. Um, in the book, I talk about um, she always called my son Davis her little snuggler. <laughs> and um, it was because he was born. So he was born premature. She came out to visit. And then afterwards, um, she had... A mastectomy and but she said I'm not gonna have the mastectomy I'm not gonna even tell my daughter about my breast cancer until I go visit that that boy Aww. and so he was born premature and she always felt that um, he came early so that she could be with him <sighs> and that she could still get her treatments on time so um, just a couple weeks ago I was going through some old DVDs and they were, um, they covered the period of time when my son was born, but I didn't have like specific dates. They were just marked like one, two, three. And so I thought, oh, I'll just pop one in and I have a, um, an external drive that's a DVD player. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even really know how I, to use the software, you know? So I was kind of just picking at it and everything. And I, I clicked on one particular reel and it was, here it was, it was my mom. And she was holding my son down at the beach and saying, oh, look, he's just, oh, he's the little snuggler. You know, he's my little snuggler and you have to make sure you, you tell him that. And, you know, she was just going on and on and on. It was just so funny to hear her voice Yes, and, and to know that that wasn't just something I had in my head. You know, it was a memory that I had carried so deep inside of me that it wound up in my book and it, you know, it was something that I think she probably carried with her too. Yeah. Um, you know, because we talked about the baby ball, baby doll. Yeah. Before we got on the show, yeah, uh-huh. we talked to the, the baby. So you have to read the story in there about the sweet baby doll that she would carry. Yeah. Yeah. It's you really know, important. Back to that being productive and give them something to do. Give give them something meaningful to hold and. And they'll they'll wrap their hands around. I used to volunteer at Marjorie P. Lee like way, way back in high school. And there was a woman there, Mrs. Kellogg, and she would carry around a baby doll. Yeah. So I bet similar story, right? Oh, absolutely. And I've seen the men carry around the dolls, too. They might just pick them up, pick up a doll or a teddy bear or something. It's comfort, right? You know, and especially if there's nobody else around, it's just a level of comfort for them that I can't provide if I'm not there. Right. And we all need that, don't we? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think your book provides a lot of people with comfort, especially those that need the stories that you shared. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really hope so. Um, And I, I believe it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. And if there's 
Um, as the marketing director said at the end of my Zoom presentation for HR Manor Care, she said, you know what, if, if one person got something out of this, then we did our jobs today. Thank you did you. your job today. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod. 